Reading from the book of Genesis, chapter 1, verses 3, 23. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and then evening there was morning in the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good, and God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind, on the earth, and it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plant yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for the days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness, and God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the fourth day, and God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm, according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. Please be seated. At the beginning of Genesis, at the beginning of Scripture, at the beginning of God's great revelation of himself, we have that simple declaration. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And as uh, Hebrew scholar Dr. Stephen Boyd has stated, there's no word in Hebrew for universe. So when Genesis tells us that God created the heavens and the earth, it's telling us that he created everything. Or if you prefer the word of God itself to the opinion of a Hebrew scholar, um, Isaiah 44, verse 24, thus says the Lord your Redeemer who formed you from the womb. And that's another whole sermon for another time. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. Or we have similar statements in the New Covenant as well. Hebrews 1, verses 2 and 3. But in these last days, he, God, has spoken to us by his Son, 
whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, the Son, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So we have a very clear statement that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and we see the activity of the Trinity in that creation. Creation is the work of God, and God alone, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, whatever we may believe about the means that God may have used, and those are things that we can discuss, but whatever we believe about that, there is nothing, and I mean that very literally, Nothing that was left to chance. Nothing is random. Nothing is happening outside the scope of God's creative power and providential control over the world that he made. So by faith we understand, even if we can't grasp the reality of of that statement that R.C. Sproul once made, that if there is one stray molecule in all the universe that is not subject to God's sovereign power, then God ceases to be God. We don't need him anymore. And even if we don't understand that, by faith we do understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of what is visible. God didn't start with the substance of some collapsed universe and then restructured into the one that we have. God created out of nothing. That universe, which is before our eyes like a beautiful book in which all creatures, great and small, are as letters to make us ponder the invisible things of God. This world, this creation is exclusively the work of God who speaks and calls into being things that do not exist, from Romans 4, 17. He speaks and he calls those things into being, and then he speaks again, breathing out his word in such a way that all scripture, including these early chapters of Genesis, which seem so problematic, all scripture is profitable. It is God-breathed, it is inspired, and it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So in this process of reproving, correcting, training, equipping, we don't overlook certain passages of Scripture just because we find those a little bit difficult to deal with, especially in the light of the way that the world looks at things. And it's important for us to see and understand this relationship between the Word of God, the Word that He speaks, and His revelation of Himself in creation. Because this is central to our understanding the account of creation given in Genesis chapter 1. We see in verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2 said, the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. The Greek word in the Septuagint that's used for deep is abyss, would be the English transliteration of it. Darkness over chaos is the sense of this here. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. That same spirit of God who inspired the human authors of scripture That same spirit of God who inspired Moses, the human author of Genesis, is hovering over and around this chaos. And then right away in verse 3, God said, let there be light, and there was light. 
In other words, God spoke, and what he commanded came to be. The creator put forth his word and spirit, and light came to the darkness of creation. And this is a pattern that repeats throughout the chapter. I've emphasized some words. Those emphases are certainly mine. They're not in the text of the ESV, but I want you to see this pattern as we walk through. Verse 6, God said... Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. Verse 9. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. Verse 11. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth, and it was so. Then again in verses 14 and 15, and God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth, and it was so. And yet again, with just slight variation in verses 20 and 21, and God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds. So see the pattern in this account, the structure that's here for us in Genesis chapter 1, over and over and over again, we find the narrative accounts of these days of creation are framed between the words, and God said on the one hand, and it was so on the other. This is not unimportant. It's not a mere literary device. This theme provides the structure for the chapter. God speaks and it comes to pass. God says, let there be and there was. This is the source and the substance of creation. We cannot think biblically and think in any other terms. It just can't be done. Now, historically, there were people called deists. And while the nature of their philosophy, deism, allowed for a wide spectrum of thought on just about everything, some of them, and at times perhaps many of them, believed that, and I quote here, a transcendent God, as a first cause, created the universe, but then left it to run on its own. God is thus not imminent, not fully personal, not sovereign over the affairs of men, not providential. This philosophy was popular in the 17th and 18th centuries, probably, I believe, as kind of a negative reaction to the theology of the Reformation with its emphasis on Scripture. Calvin said there's these two books, this beautiful book of creation that is before us in which all of God's creatures are like letters to point us to his glory. Calvin also said we are like aged men who are nearsighted and we cannot read that book without the glasses of scripture. 
I also want to point out that in the Belgic Confession, in Calvin, in all of the writings of the Reformers, there is never any intimation that we need the lenses of creation to read the scriptures. It's the other way around. God speaks and leaves all men without excuse through the creation, and then he speaks and he provides redemption in Christ Jesus through the word that he has given through apostles and prophets. But deism arose as kind of a reaction to that, a rejection of that. Some of the people who held to the philosophy claimed to respect scripture. They would even say things like, well, I believe that the Bible is the word of God in some sense, one of their most famous lines, and we'll get to this more at some other point, was whatever is, is right. So if it is the fact that there are some people who hold to this idea that scripture is the word of God, well then it must be right just because it is. Which in that instance sounds kind of okay, but if you work out the implications of whatever is, is right, it goes off in some really dark places. Now they claimed to respect scripture, but for them the teachings of Jesus Christ were not essentially novel. The gospel was not something new. The word of God was not something different from the teachings of other religions and other so-called holy men. Rather, these teachings were as old as creation, just a republication of primitive monotheism. And for all deists, natural religion was sufficient and certain. The tenets of all positive religions, Christianity among them, contained extraneous and even impure elements. Deists accept the moral teachings of the Bible without any commitment to the historical reality of the reports of miracles. So deists believed and believe, they're still out there, in some higher power, but they believed in this higher power as a kind of clockmaker who just put the universe together and wound the mechanism. Winding the mechanism was incorporating natural laws into the universe, and then he stepped back, leaving it to run all on its own. The thing about that, you'll hear it most often today in someone who will, you're talking about, you know, why is murder wrong? Never mind some of the other commandments of God. To someone who doesn't believe that the Bible is the word of God or that the Ten Commandments came from God, we say, why is murder wrong? And some will default to basically a deist sort of idea that murder is wrong because that's kind of built into the natural laws of the universe from the very beginning. Everybody knows that murder is wrong. Except if you've ever read the history of this planet, it's pretty clear not everybody agrees that murder is wrong. And some of the most horrific acts of mass murder have been committed by people who held no allegiance whatsoever to any kind of revelation. They did not have the Bible standing behind them saying, thou shalt not commit murder. So it was easy to just say, well, we'll just define this group of people as not people. The Jews, the Kulaks, the unborn, 
We'll just define them as not people, and then we can kill them wholesale. And if it's for the greater good of humanity, then what's the problem? That's kind of the approach that deism took. And like I said, there are still people out there, even some people who identify as believing in intelligent design, which is kind of a theory of origins, could easily fall into this category. Intelligent design, as you might guess from the name, does point to a designer. One of the prominent illustrations given in this is that if a spaceship landed on Mars, and we found a sophisticated camera sitting on a rock somewhere on the planet of Mars, we wouldn't assume that that camera had arisen by natural processes and evolved somehow from the rocks and minerals on the surface of Mars. We would assume we're not actually the first people to get here. Someone was here before us. Somebody designed that camera and built it and left it there. And as the argument went, well, the human eye is far more sophisticated than any camera that has ever been made. So why would we look at something as sophisticated as a human eye and assume that it arose by chance through natural forces? Design implies or requires a designer. The thing is that people who believe in intelligent design don't necessarily accept the idea that the God of scripture is that designer. And even if they do, they would tend to view Genesis 1 as little more than some kind of poetry. There were, and there are other aspects to deism, and like I said, eventually we're going to come back to them. Because deism provides that kind of natural bridge between Christian theism and the pure naturalism of the Enlightenment, which is just so prevalent in the world around us. Now, why does that matter? Remember who this scripture was originally addressed to. Moses, being the human author, we should not think of this book as drawing, as one author put it, on the oldest of stories, likely repeated in various forms across generations by ancient orators before being recorded for the fledgling nation of Israel. You know the game. You sit in a circle and you whisper a phrase or a paragraph to the person next to you, and they whisper it to the person next to them, and it goes around the circle and it comes back, and what usually arrives when it gets back to the beginning bears very little resemblance to the truth that was spoken. Well, the idea is scripture arises in that same way. You have people presenting oral traditions, telling their children and their grandchildren stories, which are then told to the next generation and the generation after that, until finally somebody, not Moses, they wouldn't accept that, actually takes the time to write this down. And what we have doesn't have to be viewed as anything like true truth because it's gone through so many iterations over all these generations we just really can't trust it but Moses is only the human author behind all of the human authors of scripture we have God's Holy Spirit breathing out the word carrying apostles and prophets along as he saw fit giving them the very words that God wanted to speak to his people and so Genesis doesn't arise from oral traditions carried across generations from one person to the next. 
Genesis arrives via Moses, who is inspired by God to present this word to the people of Israel. Now, the same author that began that paragraph about the oldest of stories um, said originally the opening chapter of the Bible tells an amazing story, and he's absolutely correct in that. Because the oldest chapter of the Bible is not just a tradition or a folk tale or anything of the kind. It is God's story. That's why I said, remember who is receiving this. We talked about this, I think, three weeks ago. That Genesis arrives through Moses to the people of God who have recently come up out of Egypt. When Moses confronted Pharaoh, he said, thus says the Lord, Yahweh, let my people go. And Pharaoh's question is totally understandable. Egypt had lots of gods by different names, but they didn't have a god named Yahweh. And so Pharaoh looks at Moses and he says, who is Yahweh that I should let his people go? The thing is, the people have been enslaved for 400 years in this land, and their hold on the faith of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob is pretty tenuous. We read later in the Old Testament that at that time, the people of Israel were worshiping not only the gods of Egypt, but the gods of Canaan and the gods of Mesopotamia who were beyond the river. They've turned away from their faith in the living God. So when they're delivered through the Red Sea and to the foot of Mount Sinai, God introduces himself. I am the Lord, I am Yahweh who brought you up out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And it would be natural for some of those people to say, okay, the name's a little familiar, but who is Yahweh? And so God gives Moses this amazing introduction to the book of the covenant, the book of Genesis, where he introduces himself to the people that he so recently rescued from slavery in Egypt. Remember, these people had seen the plagues, that he had brought against the Egyptians. They had seen the miraculous deliverance through the Red Sea. They had heard God speak in an audible voice from the top of Sinai, and they'd seen the thunder and lightning and the cloud and the smoke at the top of the mountain. So they knew that God was real. They just didn't quite know who he was. And I think it's interesting that God begins this book within the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. It's like he's saying, you know what? You've seen a lot. You've heard my law. You've seen the miracles. By the way, we'll probably talk about miracles at some point in this series. Um, There are people who want to say that those miracles didn't really happen. That the story of the people passing through the Red Sea did not happen in the way that the book of Exodus says it happened. And that's untenable. That means that God is essentially telling us lies in Scripture. And if he's lying about that, what else would he be lying about? But instead, he's saying here in Genesis, you know what? You saw the deliverance through the Red Sea. There is so much more of me to know beyond that bit that you have already seen. So the opening chapter of the Bible does tell an amazing story. It tells us that we believe in the God who speaks, 
and as I said, from Romans chapter 4, calls into existence the things that do not exist. We believe in the God who said, let there be, and it was so. The God who could have brought the heavens and the earth into existence fully formed in an instant with mere thought. We're talking about God here. He didn't have to say a word. But instead he chose to craft it over a period of six days, not because he needed the time, not because, oh, after I made the light and differentiated that from the darkness, I'm so tired, I'll wait till tomorrow to separate the waters from the land. None of that. He chose to craft it over a period of six days so that he could speak to us about himself in his revelation of the way that he made the world. See, the story of creation, and it doesn't really matter whether you're observing it in Scripture or observing it in the book of Genesis, it is not ultimately the story of creation. It's the story, it's the revelation of God himself. And I believe that's why it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What's the subject of that sentence? God. It's not a story about creation. It's a story about the God who created things. Moses was not inspired to write, in the beginning the heavens and the earth were created by God because the universe is not the main character here and certainly we are not the main characters either. God is. He put forth his power and he set the earth on its foundations according to the book of Job while the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God, the angelic host, shouted for joy. He spoke and all that he commanded came to be. There's one more phrase. God said, and it was so. There's one more phrase that repeats throughout this amazing story. It's repeated in verses 4, 10, 12, 18, 21, and 25. And God saw that it was good. And of course it was good. Creation could be nothing other than good because it is the work of God. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm, says the psalmist. By the way, this is tricky. The word translated good from the Hebrew here, it's just a little adjective that really means good. Just saying. When it says it's good, it means it's good. Like truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Same word. And yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. And I could go on, but we'd be here all day. There's like hundreds of references in the Old Testament where that same word is used to describe the goodness of God. So I won't because we ought to know by now that God is good all the time. And from the very beginning of all things, our good God has revealed himself in his good creation. You go outside and have a look around, and yes, this world has been touched by sin, but everything you see there that is good, every good and perfect gift 
comes from God, the Father of lights, in whom there is no variation or shadow of change. He made light. He made fresh air and sunshine and water. He made the earth sprout vegetation. Some of you enjoyed digging around in the dirt and planting these beautiful flowers and watching them grow. The only reason you can do that is because God created those things and he created you with the capacity to enjoy it. He set the sun, moon, and stars in their places. And then he filled the sea and the sky and the land with living creatures, each according to their kinds. And step by step, all through the process, the scriptures declare, God said, and it was so, and God saw that it was good. We haven't even arrived at the climax of creation week. We have to save that for next week if the Lord is willing But for now, listen to how God's good creation is described in Psalm 104. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom, you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things, both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. God saw everything that he had made and the order that he brought to creation, the structures that he put in place by the word of his power, and it was all very good. This is the world that God made. This is the world in which we live. In the coming weeks, we'll see, if God is willing, that not all is today what it was created to be. But even in a creation which has, for the time being, been subjected to futility, still the heavens declare the glory of God, and the whole earth is full of his glory. So we're called, we're encouraged, we're commanded in the word of God. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. I want to end this morning by standing together and confessing our faith using the words of Lord's Day 9 from the Heidelberg Catechism. I'll read the question. I'd ask that you stand and please join me in the answer. What do you believe when you say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth? That the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who out of nothing created heaven and earth and everything in them, who still upholds and rules them by his eternal counsel and providence, is my God and Father because of Christ his Son. I trust him so much that I do not doubt he will provide whatever I need for body and soul, and he will turn to my good whatever adversity he sends me in this sad world. He is able to do this because he is almighty God. He desires to do this because he is a faithful father.